Mike said we're going to be continuing our uh, looking at the book of Hebrews today. And just before we start, uh, is anybody, everybody familiar with, uh, with uh, Peanuts, the comic strip and the cartoon characters, Charlie Brown and Linus and Lucy and all them? Everybody familiar with that? Charlie Brown Christmas and it's a great pumpkin, Charlie Brown. <clears throat> um, there's, uh, is Ethan back there? There's, uh, there's one character in Peanuts who's kind of a minor character, you may remember, <clears throat> this guy called Pigpen. And uh, if you remember Pigpen, the guy was just, the guy is always covered with dirt, right? He's just got this cloud of dust around him, and he's always covered with dirt. And even if he kind of tries to clean himself up, um, see him? Huh? Well, anyways... So you know who Pigpen is, right? The guy can't even walk down the street without getting all covered with dirt. And so, <clears throat> you know, even if he cleans himself up, two minutes later, covered with dirt again. Now we're going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 7, which has to do with Jesus and this kind of obscure Old Testament figure named Melchizedek. So if you have ever in your life had reason to wonder what Jesus, Melchizedek, and Pigpen have to do with each other, you have absolutely come to the right place. Because today we're going to talk about Jesus, Melchizedek, and Pigpen, more or less in that order. Now, Hebrews is kind of a long letter, and we're kind of turning the halfway point on it. We're at chapter 7, so just to, for a quick review, in case anyone is kind of new to the church or maybe haven't been with us the whole way, the letter to the Hebrews doesn't say who it was written by or who it was written to, but based on what it says, we can kind of put together what it's about. You know, the Old Testament letters, I mean, the New Testament letters, excuse me, were always written for a reason. They were never just written because somebody felt like sitting down and writing a letter. There was something real going on. So if a letter is like correcting false teaching or is rebuking some kind of sinful behavior or clarifying confusion about something, that wasn't just a hypothetical thing. It was a real thing. And the letter to the Hebrews looks like it was written to Jewish Christians, people who grew up in Judaism and converted to Christ, but were kind of wavering in their faith and possibly even considering trying to walk away from their faith and go back to Judaism, to their old life. <clears throat> and so the letter to the Hebrews, the author kind of argues that, no, you can't do that. Once you've come to Christ, uh, you can't go back. And the author's going to spend all this time arguing for why Jesus is basically superior to the Old Testament and the old way of doing things. And he starts out by arguing that Jesus is superior to all the prophetic revelation that came before Jesus is superior to the angels. Jesus is superior to Moses. And now he's going to talk about how Jesus is superior to the old priesthood. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. To the, old, um, to the priesthood of the order of Levi, the Levitical priesthood. And at the very end of chapter 6, it says that Jesus, when he died on the cross and rose from the dead and ascended to heaven, that Jesus became a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And so, if you have a Bible or a Bible app, or if you have one of our house Bibles, it's on page 1004. We're going to read through Hebrews chapter 7, the whole chapter, and then we'll, uh, we'll get into what it's about. So verse 1 says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. Then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. 
See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these are also descended from Abraham. <clears throat> but this man, who does not have his descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, then the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there's a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him... You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for both the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently <clears throat> because he continues forever. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of his people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. So, again, the end of... Hebrews 6 talks about Jesus being made a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And as you can see, chapter 7 kind of spells out some of what that means. Now, when it says Jesus has become a priest, first of all, what does that even mean? Uh, you know, what is, what is a priest? You know, who are the priests and what did they do? Now, I, I think a lot of us have grown up in Catholicism, right? And you know, I, I grew up Roman Catholic. I think a number of us have. Or if you have any familiarity with that, when you hear the word priest, what's the first thing you think of? The guy saying mass, right? the man with the collar and the vestments and handing out communion and sitting in the confession booth and doing last rites and all that. That's kind of what a priest means to us. But for Israelite priests, it was a little bit of a different kind of a deal. The main thing that priests did, that Israelite priests did, was to mediate the presence of God. To mediate the presence of God. And what does that mean? Well, <clears throat> you have a holy God and you have sinful people and there's a problem. Because... A holy God cannot have fellowship with sinful people, and sinful people cannot approach and have fellowship with a holy God. So we got an impasse. The priests were the people who were mediators, who were sort of the go-between 
between sinful people and a holy God. The priests were the ones who would make atonement for the sins of the people so that God and people could have fellowship. Now, atonement usually came in the form of an animal sacrifice, a bull or a sheep or something. And so if someone needed to make an offering to atone for their sin, they would bring this animal to the temple, to the priest, and the priest would take out a sword, a knife the size of a sword, and basically cut the animal, slaughter it, drain the blood, get rid of the intestines, roast the meat so they could eat the meat later, sprinkle blood. I mean, it's kind of gross if you really think about it. You know, the Israelite priests were not guys handing out communion. They were basically professional butchers most of the time. But that was what was necessary to make these atonement sacrifices to atone for sin. And so the Israelite priests, they would mediate the presence of God by offering atonement sacrifices so that sinful people and a holy God could have fellowship. Now the high priest was the one who once a year would offer atonement sacrifices for the sins of the whole nation. If you have any Jewish friends and you ever heard the term Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, you can read all about it in Leviticus 16 if you're interested to read more. He would basically come once a year and offer atonement sacrifices for the sins of the entire nation of Israel, including himself. And so he would, the high priest would mediate the sins of the entire nation. And so that's, when it says Jesus was a high priest, that's what Jesus was. He was a mediator between sinful people and a holy God. Now, if someone is a Jewish person and they know their Bible and they're kind of perceptive, they might be tempted to raise their hand and go, wait a minute, wait a minute, hold on, stop, 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 stop. You're saying Jesus is some kind of priest, but wait a second. According to the law, priests had to be descendants of Aaron from the tribe of Levi. Now, Jesus was a descendant of David from the tribe of Judah, so how is Jesus even a priest at all? He's from the wrong tribe. You know, the law doesn't say anything about any people from Judah being priests and offering sacrifices. What's that about? And the author to the Hebrews would say, well, I'm glad you asked, because Jesus is not a priest according to the order of Levi from the descendants of Aaron. Jesus is a priest from the order of Melchizedek. Who in the world is that? Melchizedek? Huh? Now, if you've read the Old Testament at all, um, if you read the Old Testament, you can kind of get an idea who the big names are, right? Like who gets most of the ink in the Old Testament, like Moses and Joshua and David and Solomon and Elijah. Those are kind of the, the big guys, right? The big names. Melchizedek, if you don't know who that is, don't worry about it. Most people don't. He's only mentioned twice in the entire Old Testament, both times kind of in passing. So if you don't know who that is, don't worry about it. Um, um, <clears throat> Melchizedek, if you, again, the story of him is in Genesis 14. You don't have to turn there, but I'll, uh, I'll kind of give you the short version of who Melchizedek is. When God first called Abraham, in Genesis 12, way back near the beginning of the Bible, when God first called Abraham and said, I'm going to choose you and I'm, you're going to be the father of my people and I want you to move to this land that's one day going to belong to your descendants called Israel. It was called Canaan then. So Abraham packs his stuff, moves to Canaan, and in Canaan there weren't any countries to speak of, but there were a lot of what we call city-states. There were these cities that were ruled by kings like Sodom and Gomorrah and a few other places. And at some point there was a big battle between a bunch of these city-state kings. It was four against five, five against four, and it was a big battle. And the side that had the king of Sodom and the king of Gomorrah, they lost. They got beat, and they lost this battle. And Abraham's nephew, Lot, who was living in Sodom at the time, got captured. So, uh-oh. Now, Abraham doesn't have kids yet, 
And so Lot's like his only family. So Abraham finds out that his nephew, his only family, has been captured. Abraham musters an army, gets about 300 people together, and goes and finds the king who captured Lot and just destroys him. Just totally slaughters him and frees his nephew. So, shoot. After that battle's over, Abraham takes the spoils of that battle, measures out a tenth of it, and presents it as an offering to this person called Melchizedek. And Melchizedek was also a city-state king in Canaan, not involved in the battle, but Abraham presents this offering, this tenth of all his stuff, which, by the way, is where tithing comes from, presents the offering to Melchizedek, who's described as a priest of the Most High God, and Melchizedek receives the offering as a true representative of God and blesses Abraham in God's name. And then Melchizedek kind of disappears from Scripture until we hear about him later in one of the Psalms, but that's basically who Melchizedek was. He was a city-state king in Canaan. After this battle, Abraham busts out his nephew and then presents an offering to Melchizedek, the king who was also a priest. Now, Melchizedek's name is significant, the text tells us. Melchizedek's name means king of righteousness. And you didn't even have to know Hebrew to know that because the New Testament tells you. That's what his name means. Stole my thunder. Dang it, I was going to pronounce it in Hebrew and everything. I'm kidding. So Melchizedek is the king of righteousness. His title, king of Salem, we don't exactly know where Salem was. Some people think, and I think this is probably true, that Salem was the place that eventually became Jerusalem because the names are related, Salem and Jerusalem. Um, But he was the name Salem, or Shalem is a form of Shalom, which is the one Hebrew word like everybody knows about. Shalom means peace. And his description is he's a priest of God, a priest of God most high. So Melchizedek, his name means king of righteousness. His title is king of peace. And his description is priest of God most high. Hmm, That sounds familiar. He's very clearly a, a type and a forerunner of Jesus, our king who is also a priest. And so, if someone comes along and says, well, why, what makes Jesus' Melchizedekian priesthood, for lack of a better term, better than the Levitical priesthood? There's a couple reasons. You know, number one, as Hebrews 7 tells us, Melchizedek was a superior to Abraham. Even though Abraham had been chosen by God and given the promise that you're going to be the father of my people, somehow Melchizedek was a superior to him, and Abraham knew that. We don't know how Abraham knew that. But Abraham presented himself to Melchizedek as an inferior to a superior. And as Hebrews 7 said, it's beyond question that the superior blesses the inferior. So Abraham presented himself to Melchizedek as an inferior to a superior, which means that Melchizedek's priesthood was superior to the priesthood of Abraham's great-grandson, Levi, who was the father of all the other priests. So the Melchizedekian priesthood is better than the Levitical priesthood. And another reason this priesthood is better is that um, the Melchizedekian priesthood was given by an oath of God, it says. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Now, you know, God is truth and God always speaks truth, so God doesn't really need to use oaths to confirm the truth of what he says. But if God says something with an oath, that kind of gives a little extra weight to it, right? Um, You know, he... He said, you know, I have sworn and I will not change my mind. You are a priest forever. Now, the Levitical priests, God just gave a command and said, okay, Aaron and his sons will be the priests, and if you want to be a priest, you have to go through this consecration ritual, and then you're a priest, which is fine. But the, the, Jesus' priesthood was given with an oath, and so there's a little extra something to it. 
um, that was not present in the Levitical priesthood. And the third reason that the Melchizedekian priesthood is better is that Jesus' priesthood, it says, is eternal. And if you just you know, think about it, common sense, the Levitical priests, they, were, they could become priests at age 30, and they would serve as priests for as long as they were alive, and then they would die, and their priesthood was over. And I'm not to be flippant about it, but I mean, they, were only, they could only be priests while they were alive. They would serve as priests, and then they would die, and then their sons would become priests, and then their sons would become priests, and on and on and on. Jesus' priesthood was not a hereditary thing, it was an eternal thing. And so that's the, other, that's the third reason why Jesus' priesthood is better than the Levitical priesthood. And so, so you may be thinking, okay, Jesus' priesthood is better than the old priesthood, but what was wrong with the old priesthood? Why did we even need another priesthood at all? I mean, God set up the Levitical priesthood, so it must be legitimate, right? I mean, it can't be wrong, because God set it up. Why would anybody need another priesthood at all? Well, I don't want to give away the rest of the book because the author of Hebrews is going to answer that question at length in chapters 9 and 10. So I don't want to give away the whole rest of the book. But the short answer for what was wrong with the old priesthood is very simple. The Levitical priests were sinners too. The priests who were offering these atonement sacrifices, they were sinners too. And they had to offer atonement for their own sins, as well as the sins of the people they were making sacrifices for. And so they were never able to make a permanent atonement for anyone's sins, including their own, because they were sinners too. Think about it. If the priest performs the sacrifice and he does all the stuff, he performs his atonement ritual exactly the way God said, then he takes off his priest clothes and he goes back home to his wife and his family, he's going to sin again. And the person who brought the sacrifice, they're going to go back home and they're going to sin again. And they're going to have to come back again. Or think about the high priest. You know, once a year the high priest comes up and he offers atonement sins for the whole nation. All these kind of sacrifices and ceremonies and this goat and that goat. And the sins of the nation are atoned for. Then what? Then everybody goes home and everybody starts sinning again. Oh, we've got to do it the same time next year. Okay, next year. We're going to atone for the sins of the nation. Do all these sacrifices. Get these goats. All this ceremony. All this stuff. The sins are atoned for. Then everybody goes back home and everybody starts sinning again. Same time next year. See what's happening? What's the solution to this? There's no solution to the problem of sin built into the Levitical priesthood. There's no permanent way to have this over and done with. It's just, all right, same time next year. We'll atone for everybody's sins. And then everybody goes home and starts sinning again. And there's no solution. This is why these Jewish Christians who are reading this letter, this is why they can't go back to the old way of doing things. The Levitical priesthood was never intended to be the permanent solution. It was intended to point forward to Jesus, who was the permanent solution. You know, Jesus, the great high priest, who made a permanent, eternal, perfect atonement for everyone's sins, and he was able to do that because he didn't have any. Jesus didn't have to atone for his own sins because he didn't have any. And he was able to make atonement, not by offering sacrifices. Jesus was the sacrifice. And because Jesus went through with this and died on the cross and rose from the dead, that's the permanent, ultimate solution for sin. And that was what was missing from the priesthood of Levi, was a solution. I mean, mean, the Levitical priesthood was legitimate as far as it went, but like I said, there was no solution. You could atone for the sins and everyone would go home and sin again and they had to keep coming back. And keep making more atonements. And keep coming back. And so that was intended to be a 
point forward to the ultimate solution for sin, which was Jesus. And like, the, like Hebrews 7 says, the Levitical system was not able to make anyone perfect. It was able to atone for sins as far as it went, but there was no perfect final solution to all of this. It was just over and over again. You have to keep coming back and keep making atonement and keep coming back until finally one day the permanent solution came. Now, you can be asking, okay, all this stuff about priests and priests, so what does any of this have to do with us? Well, a couple things. Um, and what's all this minutia about the Old Testament and Melchizedek? What does any of this have to do with us? Well, if you sound think about it, sin is like dirt, and we're all kind of like pig pen. You know, sin is everywhere, and we can't even walk down the street without getting covered with it inside and out. You know, our thoughts and our speech and what we do, just the culture all around us is just covered with sin. And we're dirty. Apart from Christ, we are dirty. And we can't even walk down the street without getting covered inside and out with sin. The problem is, apart from Christ, we cannot make ourselves clean. Right? You can't clean dirt with dirt. If we try apart from Christ to make ourselves clean, it's like, okay, I'm dirty, so let me just grab a pile of mud and start scrubbing. That's not going to happen. That's not going to work. We cannot clean ourselves because we're dirty and everybody is dirty. And you cannot clean dirt with dirt. Only something that's clean can clean something that's dirty. Jesus is the only one who's actually clean. And that's why he's the only one who can clean us. Jesus is the only human being who's ever lived who can walk down the street without getting dirty. Jesus is the only one who was able to actually live among sinners and not be affected by it and not get covered with it like pig pen or like us. Jesus is able to do that because he is clean. But I also want you to understand something. Jesus did walk the streets, you know. The difference between our faith and almost any other, most other religions is most other religions kind of believe in a God who's out there somewhere, Right? We believe in the one true God who became flesh and lived among us. And so, if you're ever tempted to look up to heaven and say, you know, God, you just don't know what it's like down here. Yes, he does. Because God became flesh and lived among us. And God went through everything we went through. From conception, to birth, to infancy, childhood, young adulthood, adulthood, and eventually suffering and death. Jesus knows what we go through. Because he's been through it. Elsewhere in Hebrews it says, Jesus is a high priest who's able to sympathize with us in our weakness. And he's a high priest who's been tempted every single way we have been, except without sin. But the good thing about Jesus is, Jesus is able to do more than just sympathize. Um, the last, last week or so, in case anyone hasn't noticed, there's been this kind of wave of negativity just rampaging throughout our country because of what happened in the presidential election. <clears throat> and I have to say very candidly that for all Americans who are not straight white males, life just got a lot more complicated, even more so than it already was. And I wish that were not the case. And I really, I genuinely do sympathize. But the problem is, in my position in life, I really don't have the power to do much more than sympathize. Jesus 
can do more than sympathize. Okay? Jesus sympathizes with people in their weakness, but Jesus has the ability and the power to do more than sympathize. Jesus can make stuff clean. Jesus can make racism clean. Jesus can clean up people who are misogynistic pigs who mistreat women. Jesus can clean people. We can sympathize with people who are on the wrong end of this, which we should, and we should absolutely extend the love of Jesus in an authentic and humble way, but we do not have the power to transform people. Only Jesus has that kind of power. We can sympathize, we should sympathize, but Jesus actually has the power to make sin clean and to make sinful people clean. If you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, then you're not clean. That's the truth of reality. Only Jesus can cleanse whatever sin it is that is in your life. Only Jesus can make you clean. You can't clean yourself. I can't clean myself. We're like pig pen trying to scrub himself with mud apart from Christ. But Jesus' death on the cross made a permanent solution for sin. And so if you're not a follower of Jesus, <clears throat> you need to be made clean. For those of us who are followers of Jesus, you are clean. And you can't make yourselves more clean. You're as clean as you're ever going to be. There's nothing you can do well that's going to make you more clean. There's nothing you can do badly that's going to make you dirty in God's sight. Now, we may sin again, but the forgiveness has already been paid for. You can go back to God and ask for forgiveness. It says he's faithful and just to forgive our sins once we're followers of him. If you're a follower of Christ, you're clean. There's nothing you can do to unclean yourself. You know, there's no amount of religious performance that's going to make you more right in God's eyes. And there's no sin you can commit that's going to make you no longer a child of his. If you're a follower of Christ, you are clean, even if you don't feel clean. And you can come back and be made clean through his forgiveness. Jesus is our high priest, it says. <clears throat> and his priesthood is eternal. And his priesthood is permanent. And his priesthood actually has power to change people and to clean up this negativity that's has suddenly been brought to the surface in our land. It was always there. If this election brought it to the surface, well, now we know what it is. But you know, like I said, we can sympathize all we want. Jesus can do more than sympathize. Jesus can actually transform people and change people. And so let, let us let that be our prayer going forward as individuals and as a community. Uh, let's pray together. <clears throat> Lord Jesus, we thank you for who you are and what you've done. Lord, there's so much sin, there's so much backlash and negativity and just so much that's wrong with our country and ourselves right now. But Lord, it says that you are the one who has the priesthood that can make full atonement for sin, that can cleanse sin, that can cleanse sinful people from unrighteousness. And we thank you that that did happen. You did die on a cross and you did rise from the dead and you did ascend to heaven. We praise you for that. And we pray for the transformation of people. We pray for our president-elect, our vice president-elect, all the people who are going to be holding office in this land very, very soon. We pray that you would change them and cleanse them and cleanse this sin that's in the midst of our land right now and change the hearts of people. Cleanse the racism and cleanse the sexism and the fear of foreigners and other people. We pray you would cleanse that and change people's hearts because you're the only one who can. We can't. We leave that power to you who has it. And we thank you for everything you've done. We thank you for today and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.